This is the last day of our autumn seven-day session. It's the 21st of May, 2016. And we're going to take up an, another story from The Hidden Lamp, Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakening Women, edited by Florence Caplow and Susan Moon. And our story today is um, called Kakuzan Shido's Dagger. Here it is. The nun Kakuzan Shido trained at the notoriously tough Rinzai Monastery in Kakuji. Her teacher, Tokei, whose name meant Peach Tree Valley, gave her Inca transmission and authority to be an independent teacher. In the transmission ceremony, Shido took the seat in front of the altar and the monks asked her questions to test her skill. When it was the head monk's turn, he challenged her. In our lineage, anyone who receives Inca must give a discourse on the sutras. Are you really capable of doing this? Shido pulled out the ten-inch dagger carried by all women of the warrior class and held it in front of his face. Every Zen teacher in the lineage of our master should teach the sutras, she said. But I am a woman of the warrior line and I speak the Dharma face to face with my dagger drawn. What need do I have for books? He persisted with another question. What was your original understanding before your parents were born? She answered by sitting in silence with her eyes lowered. Then she said, Do you understand? The head monk answered with a verse. Here in Peach Tree Valley, a wine gourd has been drained to the last drop. Drunken eyes see ten miles of flowers. And Shido replied, Was I not directed to the way even before the births of my father and mother? So first, just a little bit about about this um, Kakuzan Shido. Her dates are uh, 1252 to 1305, so she was born um, in the year before Master Dogen died. She was um, born into a powerful uh, samurai family, the, Ad- the Adachi, and... Um, she married her cousin, Hojo Tokimune, uh, when she was 10 and he was 11. And at this point she um, took the title Lady Horiuchi. Um, and by the age of 18, this, uh, her husband, Tokimune, had become regent to the shogun, a very powerful position. Uh, the couple uh, later on became major patrons of Zen. Um, Tokimune um, basically provided the, the funds for the building of Engakuji and specifically as a monument to uh, those who had died 
in uh, fending off the, the threat of the Mongols who tried to invade Japan. But when he was only uh, 33 years old, he became very sick. And at that point, he entered Engakuji to train, but uh, succumbed to his illness. Lady uh, Horiuchi then spent a year in mourning, and at the end of that year, she uh, shaved her head and became a nun, given the name Kakuzan Shido. In that same year, which is 1285, most of her family were assassinated by her own son. Her son had inherited his father's position and uh, was apparently concerned about the loyalty of uh, a large number of members of, of his mother's side of the family and um, slaughtered them all. can imagine that this may have been a factor in her um, deciding to renounce worldly things altogether and um, she decided that she would use what uh, remaining family wealth she had to build a convent um, across the, the valley from Engakuji. Her son also contributed to the construction of the convent um, it doesn't say whether this was, was before or after he slaughtered half his mother's family Kakuzan named uh, the, the convent that she constructed Tokeji uh, it doesn't say in the sources I was looking at if, if this was um, in honour of her teacher um, or whether whether perhaps um, there really were, it really was a peach tree valley, which is the, what Tokeji's name means. She built the, the, the convent as a refuge for women seeking asylum for one reason or another. And there were, were plenty of them, widows, and in the, um, in the, when the husbands were killed in the, in the wars and conflicts that were raging at the time and, and sometimes there would be um, uh, a sort of contract out on the family members of somebody who had, had wronged um, one of these warlords and so the, the whole family might come in order to, to escape being, being assassinated it's a very, it was a very violent uh, time full of unrest it was only later that uh, Tokeji um, became a place for, for women to take refuge in from abusive relationships and then this, this whole thing of um, legally being able to get a divorce if one stayed for three years in the temple developed <coughs> Kakuzan uh, trained with the Chinese master um, Wu Shui Zuyuan, who was the, f the founding teacher of Engakuji. 
um, his Japanese name is Mugaku Sogen. And then she also trained with Tokei, who was um, Engakuji's fourth abbot. And um, we came across this temple earlier in Sishin when we were looking into uh, Shrotaku's paper sword. She, she was the third abbess, while um, Kakuzan, of course, is the first founding abbess. And it was, it was Kakuzan who uh, developed this uh, mirror Zen practice that we talked about um, in, in looking at Shrotaku's paper sword. There was the the um, there was um, a special mirror made for a Shinto shrine that was um, two meters across and round, and um, this this mirror ended up at um, Tokeji and uh, was from there that, that that the existence of this mirror that this this mirror Zen practice. Was developed by um, by Kakuzan. Uh, Grace Shireson, one of the writers um, who is the source for some of this material, um, suggests uh, suggests that that this this mirror scene that involved looking into a mirror, sitting still and looking into a mirror, was par- was a parallel with the traditional practice for monks that was used to quell their sexual desire and uh, their uh, fantasies about the female body and it was to contemplate a female corpse and watch it going through its various stages of decay and this is still done in some places Thailand for instance so the the mirror Zen practice was performed a similar function but to help the women just sort of deconstruct or see into their own feelings towards an attachment to or aversion to their own physical appearance. In, um, in Women of the Way, this is another source for, for some of this material, um, the author, uh, Sally Tisdale, um, kind of um, dramatizes what she imagines might have, have, have been the process that um, uh, Pakistan went through in developing this practice. She sort of dramatizes it. She writes, She looked at the mirror every day as she walked to and from the meditation hall, and then one day she stopped and sat Zazen right in front of it. After that, she moved her cushion into the mirror hall and did all her meditation there. It was curious. She had done a lot of Zazen. She had Inca and deep understanding. And she had at times felt as though everything was clear all the way through. Clear, clear to the bottom. But in front of the mirror, her mind kept flitting, resting and flitting away like a moth in the garden, like a sparrow whose head is never still. She looked in the mirror and saw, what? Nothing. Everything. Her own face and body. She looked in the mirror and noticed her eyes flitting, her hands trembling a little, her posture shifting every few moments. She looked in the mirror and tried to be still, to hold the gaze of her own eyes perfectly still, 
unmoving, like a statue. She tried to be like a picture. She tried to sit like a tree, like a rock, like a dream. She knew how to hold herself still and bright and relaxed and upright and serene and strong all at once. She knew how, but in front of the mirror it was very difficult. Finally, with eyes open and seeing herself, she could hold herself utterly still and soft just for a moment. After that, her mind began to relax and move less, flit less often and less quickly. She began to see through the reflection, through the skin and the eyes and the face and the, re and the reflection, to see nothing, empty, full. The mirror was clear, clear as water, clear as air, air, clear as the sky, clear as the truth. No dust could alight. She Dahl wrote this poem to express her understanding. If the mirror never if the mind never rests on a single thing, nothing can be clouded. No need to speak of polishing. If the mind never rests on a single thing, nothing can be clouded. No need to speak of polishing. Think here of the line from the, the Diamond Sutra. Arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. Kapazan um, loved Vesak, and and one of the th the traditions that, that developed at the at the uh, her convent was um, the celebration of Vesak, and a particularly um, very elaborate and um, artful uh, flower decorations made from the flowers that grew around. Uh, the buildings. And with of course with these um, with the these celebrations there would have been um, ceremonies. And at one of these um, she stood up and asked her assembled um, students the Buddha born today where does he come from and when she asked this question her, her uh, attendant Rinkai um, who had been with her for a long time uh, stepped out of the group and pointed to the sky with one hand and with the other to the earth and then Shido asked when the Buddha who has been born hasn't yet died, where is he? Rungkai again pointed with one hand to the heaven and with the other to the earth.
Okay, so now let's have a look at our story. Um, the nun Kakuzan Shido trained at the notoriously tough Rinzai Monastery in Gakuji. Her teacher to- Toke, whose name meant Peachtree Valley, gave her Inca transmission and authority to become an independent teacher. So we have here this um, uh, mention of Engakuji as being notoriously tough. So uh, really another boot camp. (laughs) The uh, person who is um, invited to give the give the um, reflection on this on this story in this book Hidden Lamp um, mentions her own experience of a a boot camp Zendo she says that she um, got her formal what she calls warriors training in the late 1960s so so, um, a parallel with with, uh, the Rochester Zen Centre being established and her name is Laura Del Valle. She says, I got my formal warrior's training in the late 1960s with the first Japanese Rinzai Zen teacher to come to Mexico City. Eijo Takata's eyes twinkled with humor, but his zendo was run like a boot camp. I learned to face my own terrors over and over as the Jikijitsu, or guardian of the zendo, usually a Mexican man acting like a samurai, stalked the zendo like a tiger, ready to pounce on whoever dared to shift even slightly. We had mandatory all-night sittings, so keeping still was a challenge. The sharpness of this strict practice cut through everything I was protecting about myself and pushed me to my limits, to the point where I thought I would explode. Until I found the limitless and became more sure of myself, my own dagger was drawn. Maestro Takata didn't teach much doctrine or establish elaborate rituals. In essence, he gave us one koan. How can we help with the poverty and suffering around us? This question was to shape my life. And we'll come back to how it shaped her life uh, later on. But but reading this, it, it struck me um, given what we had been looking at earlier in Sishin to, to just make sure that we don't entirely reject this, um, um, this style of, of training which involves uh, pressure so called boot camp yes we could see imbalances and um negative things in um, a training of this kind but um, for some it is the thing which which helps us go beyond our limitations go beyond the ways in which we protect ourselves it's, it's a tough kind of training um, 
that acknowledges that we live in a tough world where we're pressed and pressured in all kinds of different ways. And koan work is tough, practice is tough. But especially koans because of the the way in which they are designed to uh, stir things up. Zenke Shibiyama, um, this is quoted in the Three Pillars of Zen, um, says this about the function of a koan. Suppose here is a completely blind man who trudges along, leaning on his stick and depending on his intuition. The role of the koan is to mercilessly take the stick away from him and push him down after turning him around. Now the blind man has lost his soul support and intuition and will not know where to go or how to proceed. He will be thrown into the abyss of despair. In this same way, the koan will mercilessly take away all our intellect and knowledge. In short, the role of the koan is not to lead us to Satori easily, but on the contrary, to make us lose our way and drive us to despair. Um, Roshi Kaplow then goes on in the next paragraph to to um, extol the positive side of koans. <laughs> he says he says to, the, the complete solution of a koan involves the movement of the mind from a state of ignorance to the vibrant inner awareness of living truth. This implies the emergence into the field of consciousness of the immaculate body mind which is the reverse of the mind of delusion. You could even say the flip side here. The determination to struggle with the koan in the first place is generated by faith in the reality of the Bodhi-mind, the struggle itself being the effort of this this mind to cast off the shackles of ignorance and come to its own self-knowledge. A very, very important point. that the struggle itself is the effort of this body-mind to cast off the shackles of ignorance and come to its own self-knowledge. Mu longs for us to realize Mu. And this pressure, you know, naturally built into a koan, because we long to resolve it. There's no getting around this fact. And so there can be pressures coming from the structure of sashim, or the training, but they, they, they they bite into us because we also um, internalize the pressure. We want to resolve the great matter of birth and death. And that's uncomfortable. Desire is uncomfortable. But there are some kinds of discomfort which 
lead to liberation from suffering. There's a, uh, I think he's a biologist or possibly a philosopher named Ilya Prigogine and um, he goes into this whole question of uh, pressure and about into the importance of, of, of friction in, in our development. He says that um, friction is a fundamental property of nature and nothing grows without it. This is somebody commenting on his his work, Greg Lavoy. He says, It is precisely the quality of fragility, the capacity for being shaken up, that is paradoxically the key to growth. Any structure, whether at the molecular, chemical, physical, social or psychological level, that is insulated from disturbance is also protected from change. The koan, in a sense, it kind of um, breaks up our insulation. Of course, this, this can also happen just through things that happen to us in our lives. If we're, if we're sensitive, we will, these two will have their effect. And in this regard, you could say the koan is kind of artificial. And not, not everybody needs a koan to um, do fund, um, effective practice. Uh, Shikantaza is, the, is, the, is really the practice of uh, least artificiality. Just allowing a maturation to happen through keeping the mind open. This Greg Lavoy continues, he says, We must therefore be willing to get shaken up, to submit ourselves to the dark blossomings of chaos in order to reap the blessings of growth. Much of this is axiomatic. Stress often prompts breakthroughs. Crises point towards opportunities. Chaos is an integral part of the creative process. And protest abets the cause of democracy. The whole science of immunization is based on this wisdom. We introduce a bit of chaos in order to prevent a lot of chaos. Just enough, but not too much. We shake up the system for the sake of helping it evolve and become stronger. Hakuin talked about the koans um, as being vile. They're, they're uh, a kind of bitter medicine would say So back to our story. 
so uh, this the scene is um, Shida's transmission ceremony. She's sitting um, on a tan platform before the altar, and the the assembly, um, the senior the senior members of the assembly are coming forth and uh, standing before her and um, challenging her, posing her questions. And the head monk steps up and says. <coughs> In our lineage, anyone who receives income must give a discourse on the sutras. Are you really capable of doing this? So the implication um, here is um, that she's just a woman, you know, unlearned, weak-minded. How could she possibly give a give a um, discourse on the sutras? And actually, um, the editors here have, have somewhat simplified the dis- this um, exchange by saying sutras, but in the original it says that they're supposed to give a, a discourse on the Rinzai Roku, which is the record of Master Linji, the founder of their, the, the Rinzai school. So anyway, she, he's, he's, um, he's disparaging her, um, and this is a, this is a, t- a tried and tested approach and to, to test somebody's um, realization is to insult them um, to, to see if they're still um, subject to the to the eight worldly winds one of which is um, disapproval she had a, a little experience of this um, when I went to uh, Honolulu in um, 1989 when I was on my way to my first period of uh, longer period of training in, in Rochester and um, we used to catch the, the continental flights to go to the States so the, the cheapest and they often stopped in Honolulu and so I decided on this particular visit to um, see if I could go to the Diamond Sangha's place um, Kokoan Zendo um, near Diamond Head and um, I think I rang ahead and got directions but then the bus I was catching was late and it was raining and dark and it was hard for me to find it and so when I finally got there the sitting had already started and um, the door that I knocked on it turned out was actually went directly into the Zendo so I sort of lumbered in there um, creating a disturbance um, they let me. They were very nice about it. They let me in and showed me to a seat so I could s- sit with them for the, what was r- left of the sitting. Um, and then afterwards, they said, "Do you want to meet the Roshi?" And so I sort of said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," and um, was was ushered into a a little sort of sleep out type space in the back garden of this house, and um, got to meet Aiken Roshi and. In, class, in a classic opening Zen question, he asked me where where was I from and where was I going. You know, many many Zen stories start this way, and um, so I said, I'd, um, I've, j- "I've just finished my master's degree and I'm I'm on my way to Rochester to do six months of training there." And he said, oh, "A master's degree isn't worth much these days." 
<laughs> Haven't you got any plans to do a PhD? And um, I actually didn't. I had no interest in doing that. And I said, I said, no, I'm, I just want to train. I've, I've got no interest in, in staying any longer in academia. Um, but afterwards, I realised, yeah, he wanted to. He wanted to test the water. Wanted to see how, you know, what would happen if he poked. And this, this is the. I think we can understand this, this um, head monk in the same way. Uh, most, most um, the different versions I consulted all said that the, the head monk disapproved of Shido's um, getting transmission, and that was why he asked this question. But I don't think it's necessarily so. I mean, he could have trained for years um, with her and be her friend and still um, put this question to, in a sense, to, to stir something up for the ceremony. And we really don't, we can't tell exactly what's, what's, um, uh, what's motivating him. But it's interesting because um, head monk is, is also a kind of stock character in Zen stories, just as we looked into how old woman is a stock character. And in a sense, head monk stock character is the inverse of old woman stock character because the head monk is a person of power and, and status, an important person. And so often they get cast in the role of, of disapproving of the upstart, um, for instance, the, the sixth ancestor or... Um, other, there are other stories where the, the head monk is sort of the fall guy like his son's kicking over the water bo- bottle when the, the, there's a test set up about who's going to run a new, a new um, monastery um, but really if you think about, about the role that, that um, the, this head monk character plays in so many stories um, He's a person of power and status who has, you know, because he has a position, he has something to lose or something to protect there. But it's 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 a it's a strong contradiction with in what it means to be a monk. Because the whole point of um, being a monk is or a nun is renunciation. And true poverty means to give up acquisition and to give up status. Giving up these things is really a mark, are the marks of the religious attitude. Whether he was actually not approving of her, or whether he was just um, pretending not to approve in order to get some get something going, stir things up, um, he asks the question, and it's a question that probably did reflect the sort of general, that's public opinion about a woman being given transmission. It may have been what many of the monks there thought, or or maybe didn't say. Um, because not to forget this, this um, Kakuzan Shido had 
been before she was ordained, she was she was a patron of this temple. She helped to get it built, and no no doubt that that fact would also have been in her favour in in getting to train at Engakuji under the under the various masters. Most women wouldn't get this opportunity. But she, when when she um, replies to this question, she she passes the test pretty well. She certainly she doesn't get defensive. She doesn't um, try and contradict what um, the monk head monk has said. But it's a pretty strong reaction, I have to say. She pulled out the ten-inch dagger carried by all women of the warrior class and held it in front of his face and said, every Zen teacher in the lineage of our master should teach, the, we'll put Rinzai Roku in there, but I am a woman of the warrior line and I speak the Dharma face to face with my dagger drawn. What need do I have for books? So it's a pretty challenging uh, response. And the, the editors of the book uh, rightly um, ask, um, "What a dagger in a in a monastery?" She says, "They say, wait a minute. Why would a nun, even a nun of the warrior class, have a weapon under her robes? What's going on?" Is there a place for such a violent gest- gesture? Well, if you look at, at, at all the um, literature of Zen, it's full of blows and shouts and occasionally even knives and swords. came across something that the Dalai Lama said that... Um, is pertinent here he said on the basis of external action it is difficult to distinguish whether an action is violent or non-violent basically it depends on the motivation behind the action if the motivation is negative even though the external appearance may be very smooth and gentle in a deeper sense the action is very light violent on the contrary, harsh actions and words done with a sincere, positive motivation are essentially non-violent. In other words, violence is a destructive power. Non-violence is construction. Sometimes destruction is construction. This is a big part of, of Zen. Sometimes then teachers are called thieves or devils and they're thieves because they steal our delusions. Of course there's... Um, This, this sort of um, approach can be abused and does get, has been abused on occasion. But it's important to keep it, keep it in mind. 
not get deceived by um, just appearances, how things look. What could be the meaning of this, this dagger that she holds up? In this version of the story, um, the Rinzai Roku is, is just glossed over as Sutra, as in other words, a book of the teachings. On our altar here in the Zendo, we have uh, the figure of Manjushri, Bodhisattva of Wisdom. Um, uh, a, a youth sitting uh, on a lion and uh, in one hand he's holding a small obli- oblong object which is a sutra book and in the other hand he's holding a sword the sutra book um, refers to the teachings this is the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, after all. And the, and the teachings of the, of the sutras are um, the, the words of the Buddha, the written words of the teaching. We could say, even for this discursive wisdom here. In one hand he has that. And then in the other hand, he has a sword. And this is the sword that cuts away delusion. So, um, Kakuzan is actually very, very skillful here in her response because it's like she, she's asked about Manjushri's, um, let's see, his left hand, which holds the sutra, and she answers from Manjushri's right hand with a sword. Cut! The head monk's question seems to be coming from the side of, of, of the relative form. Why don't you teach the sutras? And she comes back pointing to the absolute emptiness. She throws the ball back in his court, you could say. Challenges him. She's very much, she's very much um, in charge of this conversation. What about this? Pointing the dagger at him. Actually, another version says that she placed the dagger, dagger before her to indicate her spiritual direction, which is a much milder version um, whether the editors were, were sort of um, taking liberties with the story, I'm not sure because they don't have access to the original sources of these stories. Um, but the, but the, the, the meaning is the same. It's just a little bit less challenging, less dramatic. She did place the dagger before her to indicate her spiritual direction. It's very much like um, the old woman of Mount Gutai. The monks are going to go to Manjushri's mountain, 
Wutashan. And there's this old lady on the path, there's a crossroads, and the monks ask her, which is the way to Mount Gutai? And she replies to each one who comes, go straight ahead. Just go straight ahead. So it's, a, it's a wonderful teaching. Which way to go? go straight ahead is to choose reality to accept whatever is in front of us as what we have to work with right now to his credit the head monk doesn't flinch if you remember that he had gone through the same tough training that she had. And so he, he comes back with his second question. What was your original, your original understanding before your parents were born? What was your original understanding before your parents were born? This is a, an old question from the Chan tradition. What was... Sometimes it's formulated as, what was my face, face before my parents gave birth to me? So she's saying to her, yeah. okay, but what about before you were a samurai? Because she said, I am of the warrior class. But also implicit in this, okay, what about prior to your being female? So this question is a lot goes a lot deeper. And in response to this question, she uh, just does her zen. She sits in silence with her eyes closed. And then she says, "Do you understand?" So she goes from this very aggressive presentation of her truth her knife she goes from this to a stance that holds everything includes everything everyone includes the head monk and the, the assembled audience at this ceremony the teachers, the ancestors. And the, the head, head monk responds to her question, do you understand, with a verse. He says, Here in Peachtree Valley, a wine gourd has been drained to the last drop. Drunken eyes see ten miles of flowers. So here in Peachtree Valley, sort of saying like here in in um, Tokay's place, assuming this was happening at Ngakuji and not over the valley, a wine gourd has been drained to the last drop. 
completely completely empty, this wine gourd. Nothing in it. Nothing left. Seems to be saying that, that he's 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 the the one who has drunk this wine. The nectar of the Dharma. And now his drunken eyes see ten miles of flowers. It's this this image of being drunk on on the teaching is quite rare in the Zen tradition, but very, very common in Sufism, where many, many poems refer to union with the with uh, God as being like being drunk on wine. In a state, you could say, in a state of ecstasy. He says, drunken eyes see ten miles of flowers. The peach trees have blossomed. He's really acknowledging here that she's a true and worthy disciple of her teacher. Blossoming. Let's finish now with um, the the story that Laura del Valle tells. She's the the teacher offering the reflection on this this um, story. And remember her t- her teacher, Ajo um, Takata, um, posed a, a koan for his students, and the koan was about how to relieve poverty and suffering that was all around them in Mexico City and she said that this question shaped her life because what happened was she ended up um, living and working as a doctor in rural Mexico um, where um, many people struggling to survive and she tells a story Isabel came to my clinic for help. She was a thin woman in her late twenties who held one hand over her mouth when she spoke to cover her few decaying teeth. She said softly, Adam has taken the three children to live with his new prostitute girlfriend. I want them back. Adam had once hung her upside down from a tree. She didn't ask me directly for fear of losing hope. A long silence followed. We both knew that going to the law was useless. Adam, the father of her children, was a hardcore drug dealer who was off limits to the state prosecutor and local police. My mind was racing. I told myself, you're a doctor, not a cop. You have no magic powers. You're not a tough guy with a gun. So just what do you think you can do? Isabel was looking at the ground despondently. I said, get in, get in the car, let's go and get them. Adam wasn't home and the girlfriend turned over the kids without resistance. Imagine she was probably quite re- relieved. An hour later, Adam was at the clinic looking for me. Isabel and the kids hid. I came out to meet him. 
Once the knife is drawn, there's no turning back. The knife demands that you pay total attention to whatever unfolds. We stared at each other for a long time, both of us breathing heavily, before he spoke. I should kill you, but you're a decent woman, you've fed my children, and I don't kill decent people. He left. Shortly afterward, he did kill someone, and he was finally sent to jail because the victim's parents had enough money and connections to go beyond the local authorities. This is her, this is her story of the knife, of being on that edge. She didn't think when she got into that car to drive and get the children about um, herself. She just did it. She responded. She continues, Working as a rural doctor for more than 30 years in a country with extreme poverty, lack of social services and blatant government corruption, I have been called into action by my neighbours countless times. I've responded to medical emergencies, domestic violence and human rights abuses, and I've organised town protests at public meetings. I lack the specialised knowledge to deal with most of the situations that confront me, but experts are scarce in this neck of the woods. I could have become paralysed or expounded Buddhist doctrine and done nothing, or turned away, assuring myself that someone else could deal with it better than I. Instead, I simply do the best I can on the spot. This is my way of living with the dagger drawn. And as we go out of Sishin now, Sishin is coming to an end. This is very good advice that she's giving us. Just simply to do the best we can on the spot. There is no formula for how we live our lives. No, no how-to manual on being an authentic human being in our world full of suffering. But we can take to heart her example just to do our best, to do what we can wholeheartedly, to give to the best of our ability 100%. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. (laughs) 